Recently, I spent one week in solitude. I traveled to the Taramandala Buddhist Monastery near Pagosa Springs, Colorado. I drove an hour and a half from Durango, where I landed, and the roads turned gravel and dirt for about six or seven miles before I arrived at the monastery where I met a man named Pema who piled my things into the back of his truck and drove me further up a mountain away from the main monastery building to a one-bedroom, well, a, stu- a one-room cabin nestled in the mountains and left me there. For a week, there was no electricity, there was no running water, it was an outhouse. There was a clock, but I chose not to use it. I put it in the drawer immediately. No phone, no laptop. But the most difficult part, by far, was no human contact. See, prior to this week, the longest I had ever been by myself was probably 24, maybe 36 hours. I'd spent a full day or a day and a half at my house making music, maybe go for a walk where I didn't see anybody, and... That was about it. Things start to feel dry, gray. Call a friend. Go grab a bite to eat. And there was no program. I wasn't left with, hey, complete this meditation from 7 to 8 a.m. Wake up at this time. Eat breakfast at this time mindfully. No, nothing. Just me and my mind. And I purposely set this time up so that there was nothing to accomplish. Though I had my guitar because I was coming from a few gigs, I promised myself I wouldn't practice. Because practice, to get better, is a task. And I wanted to know who I was when I got rid of all my tasks. So Pema drives away and I sort of start to unpack my things. I get them all in order. I have all my food for the week. And then I sit down to meditate 
And the first thing my mind does is try to create something to do, something to achieve. So it turns out doing nothing is the hardest thing to do. And I know you're listening to this and thinking, yeah, yeah, I would, I would kill, I would die to have, you know, some time off to do nothing. But really, try to do nothing for a day. It's almost unbearable. So my mind starts to create tasks. Hey, Mike, you need to run up the hill three times for exercise, or you need to reorder... Uh, the firewood outside, and you could sweep the floors, etc. And I realized I do this my whole life. How much of the time am I just creating tasks to feel busy, to feel productive? But the tasks aren't anything that I actually care about. I mean, how many of my goals do I actually care about? If I visualized being at the end of my life with this thing that I'm working on so hard right now, would I care about it? Would I even remember it? So that was lesson number one. Uh, lesson number two and these are just sort of in the order that I remember them, you know. Not necessarily in the order that they occurred to me. But I realized the second or third day that I waste about 30 to maybe 40% of my thoughts on food and appearance. Should I eat now? Should I eat later? What will I eat later? Is what I just ate healthy? If not, why did I eat it? What's wrong with me? Is it making me fatter? Do I look okay? Thirty to forty percent of my thoughts gone. Which means 30 to 40% of my life gone. Now if I visualize being at the end of my life, I know I'm not going to care if I weigh 170 or 175 pounds right now. I probably won't remember. This is an example of a task that I've created, having the perfect body, that I don't actually care about. And I spend a disproportionate amount of time thinking about it. And these thoughts prevent me from being here. Prevent me from Loving myself right now. Because my life is right now. It's always been in a right now. 
And I can use that right now to think about how there's something wrong with me and how I'll, what strategy I can take to feel better in a later right now. But the problem is I can look at photos of myself where I look incredible and I remember feeling inadequate about my physical appearance then. So the answer is not in changing my actual physical appearance. There's a, there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen in the mind. And the first step is realizing that there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen in the mind. Now, before this week in solitude, this was just kind of going on without me realizing it. On the fourth day, I wrote this, and um, I'm reading out of my notebook, which I wrote freehand. So forgive me if I have trouble deciphering my own handwriting. Day four. There is no correct way to do a day. I suspect one of the greatest gifts I will leave this week of solitude with is this. I've been wasting my life worrying about if I'm wasting my life or not. My mind is obsessed with whether or not I should eat, exercise, meditate, gargle coconut oil, continue reading this Carlos Castaneda book, or is that not holy enough? Should I read the Bible? Go for a hike, go for a short hike, go for a walk, etc. When I finally pick one of these actions, I worry incessantly about if it was the right choice. Another part of me knows that it doesn't matter. It makes no difference if I eat breakfast before I exercise or after. It makes no difference if I take a walk before I meditate instead of after. In fact, the only way to waste a day is to believe it's possible to waste a day, using different words. The only wrong way to do a day is to believe there is a right way to do a day. So it seems that, you know, I remember the first day being pretty euphoric, second day being and second day being kind of boring, and third day when I had this realization about the the food thoughts. And the fourth day I really started to have some insights. And I can tell because of the amount I wrote in this notebook. Day four. I am wholly responsible for the state of my life. This is something I can simultaneously take pride in and be ashamed of. I mean, look, I've become a multimillionaire, had the courage to dive into an industry that all told me to be wary of. I've, quote, worked on myself, end quote, a great deal. Treated myself to the lease of a Porsche. Moved into a conversion van for several months after the lease on that Porsche ended. Meditated twice a day for the last four years. Made real friends with homeless people. Gone out of my way to buy food for them. Exercised pretty much every day for the last several years. Had the courage to spend this week in solitude. Made truly beautiful art that has touched the lives of millions of people. Played dozens of free shows in the park for love. No money. Had the courage to fast for one, 
three, five, six, and even nine days at a time as a means of spiritual exploration. But I've also broken up with a girlfriend via text message, failed to have a, re a romantic relationship last more than four months, ever, become totally obsessed with my weight and physical appearance, and fasted one, three, five, and nine days as a means of punishment for eating too much or being too fat, been guilty of spiritual materialism, meaning thinking I'm better than other people because I meditate. Bragged about befriending and feeding homeless people er earlier in this essay. <laughs> Truly believed that I was both not good enough, but at the same time, better than everybody else. Decided that I was misunderstood by all and accepted that as a baseline reality of my life. This manifested itself in all relationships, lovers, family, and fans. Really wallowed in self-pity. I mean, I've made, I've made really eloquent art about how misunderstood I am. About how hard it is to not be good enough. <laughs> Lived in denial of my own death. I am responsible for all of these things listed above, positive and negative. The acknowledgement of this responsibility in all aspects of my life is where my power lies. Because I chose to make beautiful art that touched the lives of millions of people, I can choose to do that again. Conversely, because I chose to break up with my ex via text message, I can choose to not do that again. I could also choose to do it again, but I don't think I want to. I can do anything I want. Life doesn't happen to me. I happen to life. I'm writing the script to this play as I star in it. What fun. Oh, what fun. Postscript. This is my fourth day in total solitude. Meaning, I've not looked at a clock, looked at a screen, or seen another human, except for a car that passed by me on a hike. For three and a half days, and I won't for another four. I've never done this before. As I write this, a very, very green hummingbird is noisily and wildly flapping about in front of the cabin. I fasted the first 2.75 days, but I felt really shitty this morning, and I had to admit to myself that I was not fasting as, as a spiritual practice, but really as a means to lose weight, so I quit. I never realized how long a day is before. The sun sure takes its time floating across the sky. I hope I see a bear and it's scared of me and runs away. There have been moments where I'm in touch with the space in which my thoughts are occurring. The field on which the game of my thoughts and my self-awareness is played on. There have been other moments of utter despair and overwhelming self-pity. 
Sometimes these moments, despair and euphoria, are separated only by a few minutes. What's probably more true, though I have no proof, is that these highs and lows are inexplicably connected, and it's impossible to have one without the other. I've built two fires in the wood stove, not because it's cold, but because I was bored, and it's fun to build fires. I keep my used toilet paper in a Ziploc bag in the outhouse. I've chosen to spend this week in total solitude in these Colorado mountains because, one, I was curious what it would feel like to be alone for that long, and two, because I wanted to be able to brag about having spent a week in solitude so people would think I was special indeed. These are the same two reasons white people do most of the dumb shit they do, like jump off of planes and climb tall mountains. Here on day four, I miss people. There's literally nothing to do. And I was really horny last night, which is odd because I was fasting. And usually that does away with carnal affairs. Now this was a big lesson for me. Okay, maybe one of the biggest ones I took away from this week was the acknowledgement that I embarked on, upon a lot of these very esoteric practices like fasting or meditating or reading holy books or spending a week in solitude. Not because I authentically wanted to find out what was going on. I mean, there, there was a small part of me, to be fair, that wanted to find out what was going on. But a larger part of me just wanted to be someone who had done these things. It was another form of looking cool for other people. Okay? When I was 24, I bought sports cars and million-dollar houses. Now I'm 29. And I take trips to India to show off. I read the Gita to show off. I meditate to show off. And I even started this week alone to show off. And I realized each time that I finished one of these activities, I would only tell people I had completed them. I never shared what I actually learned. And I remember being on the top of a mountain during this week. You know, I had embarked on this little hike and there was a little peak you could get to pretty quickly from the cabin. And I remember being up there and realizing how much bullshit that, that was and realizing that I was having an experience that 99.9% .9 of the people in the world will not get to have. I mean, 
Other people have jobs, families, etc. They don't have a week to just jerk off and disappear. I did, I, you know. So I was blessed to be having this rare experience. And I decided that I was going to make it a goal in my life to share whatever wisdom I've garnered, which I don't argue is total. It's far from it, ladies and gentlemen. Let's be honest. <laughs> there are far more things that I don't know than I do. But I really undersold I really undersold myself before. I would I would say things like I'm not a teacher, I'm a student. And I would say now I'm a teacher and a student. Because though I was doing a lot of these things for the wrong reasons, which was to look cool, I have learned some things. And whatever I've learned, no matter how small it is, I'd like to share it as much as possible. I decided that on day four of this week, on that peak, I remember the moment. And it's funny because it's ironic because it was in the midst of one of these spiritually materialistic activities, one of these activities that I was doing to look cool, which was spending a week alone so I could come back and say, I spent a week alone, that I realized how I was using these holy things in an unholy way. So playing the game allowed me to see the game I was playing and that I really didn't want to play it anymore. Hence the podcast, right? <laughs> and I didn't know at the time how I was going to share these things. I mean, I knew all these experiences would get into my music because that's how music works. Your life, your knowledge, your relationships, who you are, all gets mixed and mashed up with all the music that you've heard in your life and liked. And something comes out. So I knew that I knew that these realizations, this growth would get into my music. I didn't I wasn't worried about that. But it felt like something else was calling. And I I, I suppose that's why I was writing these things down share them later but I didn't know what format I would do it in and it wasn't until after the retreat and you know I'm digressing a little bit that I realized I listen to podcasts just as much as music now and I'd like to create one so here we are I'm going to turn the page in my solitude retreat notebook and keep reading out of it because I didn't have the idea to do the podcast for about oh, it's probably three weeks since I ended this retreat so 
the notes are more accurate than my memory. Oh, this is still on day four. I write, I've been pretending I'm not what I want to be, implying I already am what I want to be. This way, I always have an excuse for not doing shit I should do. Right? If I pretend that I'm not whole, I'm not perfect, that gives me a reason to act unwhole and imperfect. No more. I am presently a genius, and genius is a word that has always been special to me in a little bit of an enigma of a word, if a word can be an enigma. It was this kind of hazy, opaque goal that I held in front of myself. Genius. Since I've a little high school, teenager, genius. I loved that word. I always wanted to be one. And always thought I wasn't one. And so for me, part of loving myself, being whole, was just defining myself as a genius. It doesn't actually mean anything. Some people hear that. Oh, he's calling himself a genius. But I need to call myself a genius. Otherwise, I'll feel imperfect. Because that word genius, I decided when I was very little that it was important. It's not actually important. It's made up. What is a genius? Well, as 20 people have 20 different examples or definitions. So why can't I make my definition of genius who I am? And then I can feel okay about myself. So, no more. I am presently a genius. I have and will continue to uplifting people simply by loving them as I gaze into their eyes. Seeing them for who they could be. Okay? This is a big one. And... This became something that mattered to me when I met Ramdas. For those of you who don't know, Ramdas is he's a spiritual teacher, one of the first experimenters with LSD. He was a Harvard professor, and he began to study LSD with Tim Leary. He then was dismissed from his role at Harvard. And much my, like, I guess, myself was trying to figure out what does this all mean, ended up in India where he met his guru and was, and was responsible for a lot of the transmission of Eastern teachings to the West in the late 60s, early 70s. And maybe most famously, he wrote the book, Remember, Be Here Now. It's an incredible text. And... Several years ago, a friend of mine invited me to Maui to have darshan with Ramdas to meet Ramdas. And we went to his house in Maui, and he's had a stroke. So he has an electric wheelchair, and you can see one half of his body is pretty much immobile. And he motors into the living room and looks at us 
with these big, shiny blue eyes. And he loved us. He didn't know a thing about us. And he asked a little bit about what we do, etc. But honestly, I could have told him I was a serial killer and he would have still loved me. That's unconditional love. That's loving them no matter who or what they've done. Who they are or what they've done or who they've done. <laughs> And he said to us, just love everything. You walk around and you're deciphering all day. I love this, I don't love this. I love this, I don't love this. This should be, this should not be. And he said, that's really tiring, that's exhausting. Just love everything. Love the person that cuts you off in traffic. Love your partner. Love your enemy. Love everything and everyone. It's way easier. And we spoke for maybe 30 minutes, an hour, and he said, okay, it's time for you guys to go. We said, all right. Left, I kissed his head. said thanks and when we walked out of his home I was overcome with emotion like I was looking at a whole new world where everything was lovable I mean I'd spent my life labeling things lovable unlovable lovable unlovable lovable unlovable lovable unlovable all day long made a lifestyle out of it I walked to his house and I said, I love this dirt, I love this rock, I love my friend, I love the shirt he's wearing and the shoelaces on his shoe. I mean, I was, we were all, there was three of us, we were physically high, we were walking around, couldn't, couldn't believe how we felt. And it became a goal of mine to be someone who looked at others with those kind of eyes. To see them for who they could be, not who they were. To see more in them than they saw in themselves. And to see them as totally lovable. And so I'd really worked on this for a couple of years. Looking people in the eye. And loving them. Not saying I love you, but just loving them in my own mind. I might say I love you in my own mind. And periodically I would reveal that this was something that mattered to me. To a friend or an associate. And every once in a while, after I said that, you know, I want to be someone who lights people up with my eyes, who loves people with my eyes makes them feel like Ramdas made me feel. And every once in a while, excuse me, 
the person I was telling that I had this goal would tell me, you've done that for me before. And when I heard this, I couldn't accept it. I thought, no. It would go through the filter of, I'm not good enough yet. I'm still working there. And listen, I have my moments up and down, but I'm someone who can do that sometimes. I'm not someone who's going to do that later. I, I'm right here. A lot of these goals that I'd been working towards, I'd already attained, but I wouldn't let myself realize that I'd already attained them. And so what was I working on? So I write, I am presently a genius. I have and will continue to uplift people simply by loving them as I gaze into their eyes, seeing them for who they could be. And then I write, I am a teacher. Okay. And I've touched on this already, but I, I want to share what I've got. And I'm not saying what I've got is the total answer. It's just what I've got. And nothing more and nothing less. I'm happy. I'm awakened. I'm enlightened. Okay, now this is an interesting one. Another, another bombastic comment, right? I'm presently a genius. I'm awakened. I'm enlightened. Well, it's funny. The, the path of enlightenment, which is a funny word because there's no path to it. The belief that there was a path, the goal of enlightenment, having it as a goal, prevented me from realizing I already was. Right? The believing that I had more work to do, I have to spend this week in solitude and then I'll be further on that path. That thought process was the precise obstacle in the way of my realizing that already done okay I'm willing to bet you listening have a series of tasks which you believe upon accomplishing them you'll feel whole but there's no way there's no way for you to feel whole. All your tasks are not going to work. Give them up. And it's the giving up that for me was the awakening. I mean, my life was about improving. Meditating. Diligently every day. 
embarking upon these spiritual journeys like this week of solitude, reading the holy books, etc., playing the guitar, practicing, making new music, keeping after it, being persistent, having perseverance. And that's glorified in this culture. People would say, Mike is driven. He's got the passion. He's got the fire. He's got that thing. He's one of the hardest workers I've ever seen. My identity was tied to improvement. And there's nothing wrong with improvement unless you, like me, believe that improvement was necessary because I'm not enough right now. It was ignorant to the fact that I am enough right now. I'm whole right now. I'm okay right now. I'm perfectly imperfect right now. I had to give up getting better. And once I did, hell, it's only been a month, but I haven't felt the same. I'll tell you what, a word like transformed would not feel hyperbolic to me. That would not feel like an exaggeration. I feel like a new guy. Plan for day five. So after, after the whole wasting, there's no real way to waste a day except by worrying about if you're wasting a day or not. After that thought, I planned out day five. And I believed with a plan, I wouldn't have to dedicate so many thoughts to, am I doing the right thing? Should I eat before I meditate, etc. So plan for day five. Wake up. Smile. And this is just a list. Wake up. Smile. Drink agua. Pee poop. Bring notebook. Write dreams appreciation list while pooping. Brush teeth. Meditate. Walk. Read. Eat. Walk. Read, meditate, walk, read, eat, walk, read. And that's as far as I got. Now the other thing about, not the other thing, another thing about this retreat on this land, on this monastery, was my dreams were incredibly vivid. And I don't know if this was a product of, I don't know, just not using the phone or meditating more each day. But when I woke up every day, I mean, I could remember several dreams which would take me pages filled up pages in my notebook to write them down and sometimes I'd get tired of writing them down because I already felt like I knew them 
but it was just remarkable the level of detail with which I could recall. And when I finished the week, I told Pema this, the man who worked there, and he said that's the most common feedback we get when people come here. Is they have vivid dreams. So I'm going to not read my dreams because most of them are very ridiculous and don't make much much sense and involve characters that you don't know. <laughs> like, but he's... Okay, so let me... Finish. This is still this one dream. Oh my gosh, I remember this dream. Some other dream. Oh yes. It's the end of day four. In the evening. Walking down the road, and I meditated on a rock about 30 feet from the road. And while I was meditating, I came to this simple realization that brought me to tears. My mother is an incredible woman, tough, still caring, and gentle loving she's honest she doesn't throw around compliments or niceties that she doesn't mean for example if I play her a song that she doesn't like one of mine that I'm working on she'll say I don't like it that's not for me but then when I play one she actually does like she said this is great you know, it actually means something. So her words have integrity. And I used to commiserate and complain, hey, my mom doesn't say she's proud enough, proud of me enough. I mean, she would say she was proud of me, right? But my complaint was she didn't say it enough. And so as I'm meditating on this rock, I had this thought. I've always felt mom didn't say she was proud of me enough. But when was the last time I told mom that I was proud of her? I've been so blind. And I was close to tears realizing that. I mean, it's so simple. Give a little more of what you want to get. You might get some back. Day five. I realize, this is what I wrote on day five. I realized that I categorized days by where I was, by physical location. Day one, I went on the road and turned right and down the road before sunset. Day two, I hiked down into the meadows and saw the wild horses. 
Day three, I went up my mountain into the high trees and meditated on a fallen one. Day four, I ate finally and I walked along the road. Day five, nowhere yet. So I just thought it was interesting that when I remembered each day, like I would try to think of day one, Okay, now I'm on day five. I'd think of day one. And the way I would differentiate day one from day two was by where I went on that day. Where I physically was. It wasn't by how I felt. It was through location that I could remember how I felt. I wasn't able to access the memory of an emotion or a thought without first remembering where I was. What if... I was able to categorize by emotional states. I have to recall the place first and then I can remember the state of consciousness that went with it. It's tough to do it the other way around. And after that, there's a list of action items that I'd like to do for other people. gifts to buy, business deals that I'd done the wrong thing on, essentially stolen money from people that I want to give back. Day five. I'm realizing that I've been tricking myself into believing in my own immortality which of course is the mistake of a lifetime, smiley face. There is no future. Future doesn't exist. I must write each album like it will be the last thing I give to the world. It might be. Stop fucking around. It's not fair to yourself or to the world. Haven't you been holding something back? Haven't you been saving some part of yourself for later, for the grand finale? There is no later. This is it. Give it all now or don't even do it. Seriously. This is not to be another clever page in this notebook that you forget about and find amusing as you peruse these pages in self-indulgence later. No. No, motherfucker. This entry is a manifestation. It is a transformation, a breakthrough. This may sound like I'm beating myself, like I'm not loving myself, but in truth, I'm using this strong language because I love myself and I love the world too much to not fully express myself. Really, I do. I can play bigger than I have been. It's time. Give it everything you have. Give your whole love, your whole imagination to the world with disregard for what it gives you back. Go.
Day 6 I hiked off trail to the top of Ekajati. I know it seems like I'm writing to document what I'm doing, but really the writing is what I'm doing. I'm at the summit now. This baby peak is nestled in the middle of several other baby peaks. These baby peaks are high enough to see the snow-capped big boys in the distance. A white and black butterfly flaps noisily right up to my face as if he wants to talk. He startles me and I flinch and he scurries off. I'm above a hawk, close enough to see the light between its feathers and how he doesn't fly as much as he surfs. Yesterday I ran into a desert-colored lizard who told me to enjoy being human. He used to be human. He took it for granted. I'm always right here. No matter where I go, I'm still stuck in the present. And stuck isn't meant to feel negative, it just means that I'm locked in to the present moment, okay? Excuse me. Is the key to freedom from the present moment to accept that I'm locked in it? That gets me a little high, for sure. Giving up the struggle to, quote, figure it all out, end quote, makes me smile. But what is emotion? And how does emotion differ from thought? Does emotion dictate thought, or does thought dictate emotion? The apparent layers of awareness also baffle me. First layer. There's a base layer of awareness that is, quote, thinking, unquote. The voice that rambles on seemingly all day. This layer has rackets, possibility, biases, systems developed over time. Second layer. Simultaneously, there's a deeper layer of awareness that is aware of the first layer. That's how I'm able to witness and write about the first layer. Right? I can hear the dialogue in my own head, which means that I must not be the dialogue I hear in my own head because I'm listening to it. I can hear the thoughts. So Eckhart Tolle says, this second layer is who I really am. But there's a third layer of awareness that is aware of the first and second layers. That's how I'm able to witness and write about the first and second layers, right? So <laughs> this gets, you know, a kind of annoying like a kid game very quickly. But I can watch myself watching the dialogue in my own head. So not only can I watch the dialogue, or excuse me, not only can I listen 
to the dialogue in my own head. But I can listen to myself listening to the dialogue in my own head. And this goes on forever. Fourth layer, fifth layer, etc. I suspect that Mr. Tolley, upon reading this, it's, all right, it's wishful thinking to believe that he would ever lay eyes on this nonsense. <laughs> would posit that the layer that layers two through infinity are actually all part of the first layer's babbling. That is to say, this whole concept of layers could just be all part of the first layer, could all be a part of the dialogue, just disguised in the noble costume of deeper layers. He might say that the real second layer or the real sea of consciousness, or the real you, or me, is beyond language and time, and it is the space in which all of this takes place. This space is more elusive to be or to find than it seems. During my meditations, I often think I'm either in or I, quote, am, end quote, this, quote, space, end quote. But then I realize that there is actually a thought that is telling me I'm in or I am it or congratulations, you're enlightened. Thus, this must not be the space because something outside of it is aware of it, witnessing it and labeling it as the space. Ah! <laughs> Perhaps it's a problem of language. I used to define the goal of language as, quote, to communicate, end quote. But it may be more accurate to say that the goal of language is to communicate by differentiation. To define is to say what something is by separating it from what it is not. For example, a sparrow is a sparrow because it is not a blue jay color, size, tone of chirp, etc., are arbitrarily, yes, arbitrarily picked as a means to categorize or define types of bird. As far as I can understand, this was and is done in an effort to find patterns in reality, to help us figure out what reality is, where it comes from. So to ask, why is it important we know a sparrow is a sparrow, which it really isn't, it's only defined such because we arbitrarily define it as such, is really to ask, why is it important we have language? And put this another way. We thought that if we noticed the patterns in reality, the patterns in nature, this could bring us to some larger truth, a capital T truth. An early language was undoubtedly a gift and survival for early men. I mean, imagine cavemen using language to set more elaborate traps to feed themselves more efficiently. But over time, 
It was us who became trapped by language. Remember the beginning of this essay? I'm trapped in the present moment. Perhaps the only reason I'm stuck in the present moment is language. Perhaps the problem is there's no such thing as, quote, stuck or in the present moment. It's all just as made up as Sparrow. The word stuck. The word's present moment. Those delineations, those definitions are just as arbitrary as Sparrow. So what the hell am I saying? I'm presenting the idea that the reason I feel, quote, stuck, unquote, the reason we fight wars, the reason it's difficult to sit quietly in a room alone or to feel or become the, quote, space, unquote, is language, reality, or life is not meant to be differentiated. It just is. Reality and life, they just are. There's no pattern. The bird isn't a sparrow, it just is. And any word must, by definition of being a word, differentiate. The Hindus have tried to circumvent this by creating a sound slash word to mean everything, Brahma. But over time, Brahma has come to be defined what it is not. For example, it is not the Judeo-Christian definition of God. And because it's everything, it's not nothing. It's still a word. Reality or life is just one big divine happening. It was never meant to be dissected. There are no patterns that can unstuck us. So it was worth a shot, but language has failed. Sure, we're, quote, smarter, unquote, because of it. But language created the category of, quote, smarter. Language, you see, language is only winning at the games that it created. It's important to note that this is only problematic because we think in language. Thus, we see reality or life through language. That is to say, we see life through differentiation as opposed to unity. So while it may not be impossible to see or be the space, language makes it freaking hard. It's like wearing a pair of tinted sunglasses that you can never take off. You see, because you think in language, you see reality or life through it. That is to say, you see it through differentiation. So how can you see unity through differentiation? 
a language-dominated existence cuts us off from more than it affords us. And Lakai making this argument through language. <laughs> Solutions. And I really like solution number one. We've got to figure out a way to think or to be or to exist without words. Now you're thinking, well, just meditate. I've meditated twice per day for the last three or four years. And as I discussed earlier, I rarely, if ever, get into that space without defining it as the space, which makes it not the space. If anyone alive right now is capable of actually turning off language for extended periods of time, and I believe there probably are people out there that do that, but I could probably count them on two hands. Maybe there's a couple hundred, but like, <laughs> it's rare is what I'm, I'm saying. I, but I believe it's possible. But these guys are basically the Michael Phelps of meditation. I'm proposing that the modern human, the next version of human, should be able to turn off language at will and then turn it on at will. We should have language as a tool, but not as a default means of seeing reality or life. How do we do this? I don't know. But I'm proposing that it matters, so maybe someone listening to this can figure it out. I mean, seriously, let me, seri let me sincerely challenge you. The driven amongst you to take this on. Imagine the technological breakthrough this would be. For me personally, to be able to turn off language would be worth more than any phone, internet, air travel combined. I'd give them all up to be able to see the unity of the universe and live in that at will. Now, I feel like I have moments where I feel connected to everything, but it doesn't feel like I can do it at will. And it's not guaranteed that turning language off would give me that power. But it might. It'd be worth a shot. I mean, it would allow me to shatter the concept of worth. And then I could have that concept back later in the day. Do we already do this in dreamless or deep sleep? If so... Is it possible to do it while being awake? Let's figure it out. Okay? Solution number two. Maybe it's too late for us, but imagine a small test society that vows to not teach their children language. Well, this sounds like the babbling of someone on the sixth day of <laughs> a week of solitude. 
a town in a bubble where no one speaks or reads. Then we'd have a small population of languageless humans. Would they by default be in or be, quote, the space, end quote? That is to ask, are we all enlightened before we learn language? And proposing the answer is yes, but I'm not really sure. Thus, I will not be volunteering me or my children. <laughs> Imagine the disconnect between parent and child if one of you knows language and the other doesn't. But if the gift is to be the space that is enlightenment, that perhaps is the greatest gift a parent could give the child to not teach it language. How would we know? How would we ask or measure their happiness or their enlightenment if they have no concept or word for happiness or enlightenment? How could we determine if they are, quote, the space if they have never heard the words, quote, the space, end quote, or any words ever? Right? This is risky business. Solution number one is much more promising. And I end this essay with a poem. Two lines. There is no anything. There is no proof. Words have never been friends with the truth. Now look, I keep going the next page a little bit. But maybe language is just part of what is, part of reality, part of the divine process. To not fight it is to be free from it. Okay? And that's maybe true of anything in life. To not fight it is to be free from it. And later that day, I hiked back to the top of the small peak, and I wrote, I'd like to formally change my life goal to being as kind and compassionate to people as I possibly can. Minutes later, I wrote, I'd like to now formally change my life goal to being as present as possible as much of the time as I can. This word present implies a state of consciousness that I can't fully capture in language, but a sense of accepting all while simultaneously knowing it's all all right. So can I have two life goals? Luckily, I believe that presence breeds ultimate kindness and compassion. So yes, I can have two smiley face. Now, this page has changed my life. And that's the funny thing, you know, I hear guys like Werner Erhard or, or Tony Robbins, they'll talk about change, real change in someone's life, a breakthrough or a transformation, whatever the word you want to use. But they say it happens in an instant. 
And we're raised to believe that the harder we work at something, the deeper the impact it will have. But these transformations or, or impacts happen instantly. And this page that I just read was one of those things. I mean, since leaving this mountain, I think about that all the time. The goal of my day is to be as kind as possible. And I have to define what that means. When I'm walking down the street and a homeless man walks by with no shoes and I have a pair of shoes on and I'm close to my house and I know that I have at least 10 more pair in my house, Am I going to be as kind and compassionate as I can possibly be? Or am I going to conform to society's norms? Because society's norms would say, go back to your house. Go home. And if you want, you can donate your shoes later. But my life goal to be as kind and compassionate as I can possibly be means take your damn shoes off. Okay, the next page. I notice myself preparing talking points for my friends about this week of solitude. So I would realize that I'm sitting in this week of aloneness, with no human contact, and I'm planning out how I'm going to describe this week of aloneness to my friends when I'm done with it. So I'm subverting the actual experience by thinking about how I'm going to describe the experience. Right? So I'm running these scripts, or excuse me, writing these scripts in my head like, it was difficult, but I'm glad I did it because I didn't realize how long a day really is. I didn't look at a clock for an entire week, etc. In essence, I'm noticing I'm using many of my present moments to prepare for later present moments. I thought that this was a symptom of social media, right? I mean, you hear people complain all the time. Everyone's, you know, on Instagram, they're missing their real life, their Facebook, or they're just doing this for the photo. But I didn't have Instagram there. So I now think that social media only empowers and capitalizes on this mode of thinking. The mode of thinking already existed. I think tomorrow... I will try doing whatever I want to do with as little second-guessing as possible. That, or I'll try meditating the entire day. I want to have real talks with three of my friends. I want to enjoy tomorrow as much as possible. It's the last day. Woo-hoo. 
And I decided on this last day, day seven, that I would just act impulsively all day. I didn't try to meditate all day. Day seven, I had the idea that I definitely want to start a group with an EDM producer. I got some of my, some, I got a good 10, 15 songs that I could just give the acapellas to them and let them go crazy. And it would be amazing. Oh, day seven, I woke up, and this was the day I was going to do whatever I actually wanted to do without second-guessing it. And right when the day started, I woke up with the birds. They woke me up. And the sun wasn't quite peeking over the ridge yet. And I wanted to see the sunrise. And I failed immediately at my goal because I thought of a thousand reasons why I shouldn't see the sunrise. Because the bed is comfy, I'm tired, maybe I'm a little behind on sleep. You know, these are long days, so I probably only slept, I don't know how how long. And then I thought, what the hell? What do I actually want to do? I mean, there's no responsibility out here. No one's going to give me a report card on if I get up and watch the sunrise or if I don't. There's no right answer. I get to pick what I want and why am I having such a hard time doing so? And so finally I decided I actually want to see the sunrise. So I got my ass out of bed and I hiked up the little mountain and I watched the sunrise. And I wrote this from that peak. I understand the whole, quote, outside of time, end quote, part of me now. As I watch the sun peek over the ridge and climb higher and higher in the sky, a change indicating the passage of time. The sun is climbing higher, which means it's changing. The bushes and the trees suddenly grow long shadows, which shrink and shrink as I write this, a change also indicating the passage of time. So anything that changes is in time because it was one thing and now it's something else, which means there has to be a before and an after. In other words, things are different than they once were, so time must have passed. Meanwhile, I am stuck in the present moment. No matter how hard I try, I can't get into the past or the future. I'm always in the present. Thus, as everything around, quote, me, end quote, changes, sun shadows my body. And I would even argue that my mind changes. As thoughts and emotions change, i.e. my mind and emotional state aren't the same as they once were, as this all goes on, I'm still in the present moment. So I would argue who I really am is not my body and not my mind and not my personality. I can imagine being without being Mike Posner. Can you? It's a fun exercise. Can you imagine 
still being some version of consciousness or awareness without being your personality. Because my personality changes as well. I mean, I'm not I don't have the same personality as I did a month ago for sure. But, I mean, 10 years ago, I had a totally different personality. So this is not by choice. I'm stuck in it. I'm stuck in the present moment. I can't get out of it. Thus, I am outside of time. Right? This awareness that's behind the mind, behind the body, behind the personality, the thoughts, the emotional state, is outside of time because it doesn't change. It's eternal. You don't have to meditate in a cave to be this. You just are this. Congratulations. <laughs> Mike Posner, day seven, all right. Now, the last real epiphany or breakthrough that I had during this week of solitude was a realization that some of the goals that I had planned for the future fell into that category that I talked about earlier, which was I didn't actually want to do them. I just wanted to be someone who could say I had done them. So yeah, that was a confusing sentence, so I'll jump into an example. I had been planning internally, and I mentioned it to some friends, to walk across America. You know, after doing the Ninja Tour, which I played free shows and drove around in an RV and played in parks for my fans, I thought it'd be cool to do that on foot. But I didn't really want to do it because I thought it'd be fun. I just wanted it on my resume. I thought it made me cooler. thought it made me more special. No. I was thinking about other desires I had. I was reading a, a novel up there by Richard Bach who, um, called One, which I don't really recommend. It's a pretty good book, but I like Jonathan Livingston Siegel better if you're going to read Bach. And in one, he's flying his plane around. And I thought it'd be cool to learn how to fly. I could fly to Colorado and California on a, on a whim, a little propeller plane, etc. And I sort of daydreamed about this, and then I thought about. What do I really want? I 
thought about having a child and how I would feel looking into the child's eyes for the first time, holding the child for the first time. Creating another life. And whatever pleasure or joy I got out of daydreaming about the airplane, learning to fly, was 10,000 times more powerful when I thought about a child. But I had sort of put the having a child thing on the back burner for years. That was on my list of things I'd do when I'm done being famous, when I'm done being popular. And this was because I thought having a child was normal. You know, everyone has children. I want to be cool. I want to be special. I want to walk across America. And so I was someone who, you know, in a moment, just like, make no ever. I don't go on dates. I don't ask girls out. I just, you know, I always looked at that as kind of a distraction from music, higher calling. And I realized that it's a false dichotomy. I don't have to pick one or the other. I can have both. So why not? And that's a big one for me. So I'm going to end now. I have a car coming to take me to the airport in 30 minutes. I'm going to fly to Portland where I'm taking the advanced course in the landmark uh, curriculum. And... I'm sure I'll have more to talk about after I complete that. So thank you for listening sincerely to the ramblings of a very <laughs> lonely man with a lot of time to think <laughs> on this this week of solitude. But it really was something unlike I'd, I've experienced any other time in my life. And it was really hard at times. I mean, there was one night where I felt so trapped in the present moment that I thought, oh, the rest of my life is going to be just like this. I'm going to be here in the present. So why don't the only way out of it maybe is if I kill myself. And I sort of entertained that line of thinking for a couple minutes. And I thought, I better, I better go to bed. <laughs> and of course, I went to bed and felt much better the next day. Um, but 
Not an easy thing to do. But I got a hell of a lot out of it. Um, and I hope you did too. Jenny the angel takes off her clothes Looks in the mirror, thinks ugly and gross These wings are too big and I hate this halo This shit ain't easy, nobody knows I'm still afraid of flying And I just came This place If I could just slow What's 
going on and where you fit in. To be a present that may bring hope and consolation and blessing to others. That's what you're here for.